Welcome to the Rising Sea Voices podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Here you will discover and learn from the new generation of coastal, estuarine, and ocean scientists and engineers. My name is Felicien Metachant. I am the Rising Sea Voices host. Before starting today's episode, I would like to offer a land acknowledgement. I live and work in Vancouver, Washington. This land has been cared for and called home by the Chinook Indian Nation, the Kaolitz Indian tribe, and the Chinookan, Tanapam, and Krikitat peoples from time immemorial. In the 1800s, the Tanapam Indians were relocated to the Kaolitz Reservation, where the descendants still live today, while many of the present-day descendants of the Krikitat people are part of the Yakama Nation. The land where I live holds great historical, spiritual, and personal significance for its original stewards. However, there is still no federal acknowledgement of the Chinook as an Indian tribe, and the Kaolitz Indian tribe had to wait until 2000 to be officially recognized by the federal government. I recognized and continually support and advocate for the sovereignty of the native nations in this territory and beyond. Despite centuries of colonial theft and violence, this is still indigenous land. It will always be indigenous land. Indigenous people are not relics of the past, and their talents and knowledge are worth celebrating. Today, my guest is Emlim. Emlim is a queer, non-binary master's student in biological sciences at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada. They received their Bachelor's of Science at University of British Columbia with a major of biology. They are currently studying the role animals play in nutrient cycling. They are based in Benfield, Canada, on the traditional territories of the Huayet First Nations. An avid scuba diver, M is passionate about marine biology, diversity, and inclusion. Welcome, M. How are you doing? Hi, I'm great. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, and it's great to have you. And uh, so both living on the in the Pacific Northwest and currently suffering a heat wave. I guess it's not as hot on your end, but it's pretty hot here. Yeah, we're roasting up here in British Columbia as well. Yeah, I think in Vancouver, Washington, it's like 115 uh, degree right now, so pretty hot. <laughs> so it's a pleasure to have you um, today on the podcast, and I would like you to introduce yourself, if you could share a little, more, a little about your personal story and professional story, and because you are now a master's student in biological sciences, can you tell us a little more about how you ended up in this field? Yeah, I'd love to share some of my story. So I grew up in Vancouver, BC, and my parents are very into the outdoors. And so I was lucky enough to grow up going out to the beaches and checking out tide pools and got really excited and really curious about the natural environment. So that's what brought me out to uh, the University of British Columbia. I wanted to study biology and I was really excited about learning more about all the things I used to poke at when I was a kid. Um, I was lucky enough to get to work with Dr. Christopher Harley, who's um, a professor that I really admire and really enjoyed working with. And this is kind of where I got into more of the marine ecology realm, um, kind of pushing buttons in the intertidal zone and seeing what the results are. So that was a really exciting, really formative experience. Um, something interesting about me is that I actually almost dropped out after my first year in university. Um, I was juggling a full-time job and working at a horse stable and riding competitively, and I just wasn't really sure if I wanted to stick with it or not. 
uh, working with director Chris Harley really pushed me into sticking it out, getting my nose to the grindstone and making it happen. You came from like a, a completely different environment in a way. At first, I was like, you were working, you know, with horses before working with a marine environment. Yeah, yeah. Horses are very different than jellyfish. I'll tell you that. <laughs> So um, transitioning away from horses and more into uh, all the squishy little animals under rocks was pretty interesting, but it is really neat to ask these questions and actually get to answer them for yourselves, especially as an undergraduate student, you know, thinking of a question and then realizing it's not in the literature, no one else has answered it. And if you want to know the answer, you have to get your hands dirty and figure it out yourself. That was really formative. And what did you study with the... As an undergrad then, what kind of questions did you look at then? Yeah, so um, Chris Harley's lab does a lot of work on ocean acidification, which is um, kind of what they call like the second beast of climate change. So with all the carbon dioxide coming from fossil fuels, um, as folks are aware, especially right now when we're recording with this heat wave, that's changing the climate of our planet but that carbon dioxide is also dissolving into our oceans and it's making them more acidic. And so I was asking questions about what would happen to our marine environments um, when they were becoming more acidic, specifically using the animals that people often scrape off the bottom of their boats, these fouling communities, and acidifying them and kind of seeing what would happen. Nice. So you basically did a lot of field work too, I guess, and lab work then. Yeah, I was actually based out of a marina where they had um, some sea lions from the aquarium. And so I'd be laying on the dock, you know, fiddling with my tiles on ropes and a sea lion and a trainer would just come walking down the dock behind me. And it was pretty cool. <laughs> That's quite the, yeah, the fieldwork of Ironmans. That's pretty unusual. Yeah. And after, so that was your undergrad studies and where you're basically through this course and and research you've been exposed to like, yeah, it's what I want to do basically study more like the marine environment. And so what motivated you to then, you know, pursue a master? I think just that research bug. It was just so fun being in the field, asking these questions. I just loved it so much. I loved being in a fun, supportive lab, and I just wanted to keep doing that. But I did take a bit of a break between my undergrad and going into grad school. I was a little bit tired. It's quite a long process. So I, that's actually what brought me out to Banfield is I got a job. Um, working as a marine science educator out in, out in Banfield. And so I did that for a little while, which helped me get even more excited about getting back into academia. Nice. So how did you, how was your experience as a science educator? Oh, it was, it was just the best thing in the world. I'd never really worked with kids before. Um, to be honest, they kind of made me a little bit nervous. <laughs> Um, but it was just so fun. I got to share all the things that I love the most, you know, looking in tide pools, asking questions, getting curious, and I got to share them with these young, curious minds. And it was really, really fun. So it was basically a way of, I don't know, giving back, like you got inspired in this work through one of your professor. And now you're like basically inspiring those kids to do something maybe similar. So it was really rewarding um, being able to work with these students and, you know, share the things that I love the most in the world with them, um, especially because when I was working as an educator here, that was kind of lining up with where I'd started, you know, probing into my gender identity and started realizing that maybe I was trans, maybe I was non-binary. 
So it was actually pretty scary having to introduce myself to all these classes and, you know, explain my pronouns, are they and them, and feel all the questions that come with that. But it was also rewarding because every couple classes, I would get a student that was queer or trans or non-binary. And I know that it means a lot for folks like us to see someone else um, in a position of power kind of succeeding professionally. And some of the students would come up afterwards and you know, express how much it means to them to see someone else who uses they, them pronouns. So it was exciting to share you know, my whole self with these kids. Now that's really awesome because on one side you had to show, you had to make yourself vulnerable in a way. Like you say, it was not a comfortable space and you were like still searching yourself. But on one side, uh, yeah, you've been able basically to be a role model for those kids to be like, yeah, maybe it's something I can do because this person is like me and and this, you know, is a space that can be welcoming to me as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember in Chris Harley's lab, um, Kat Anderson was doing her PhD and she was the fir- one of the first people I can remember um, as a visibly queer scientist, you know, with a blue, bright blue undercut, proudly talking about, um, you know, going to pride events. And I was just in awe of this woman, like, wow, I can't, I can't believe she's, she's so visible and, and everyone respects her and she's getting her PhD and that's amazing. So it was really exciting to get to be that person for someone else. No, that's great. And it shows that, yeah, who can be like so nerve wracking and uncomfortable and I cannot, I mean, that's me just imagining that, you know, um, but yeah, I can relate to, to that too. I mean, it's a really different story, but me, for example, with my disability, also to be like, yeah, can I still do the work I can do? Do I need to share everything about me? And like how, how painful my back is, or, you know, can I do this task? Or should I be really upfront with everything about me, what I went through? So it can be, so it's really nice when you have those welcoming space and when you have actually people like leading the way and telling you you can be yourself and you know and being doing awesome work you know it yeah it doesn't really matter you who you are who you represent you it should be welcoming and we all doing awesome job <laughs> yeah absolutely and it also helped me build a lot of confidence you know meeting all these people and having them accept me and even if they didn't fully understand you know respect my pronouns and such was really um, a formative part of my life as well, getting that that confidence boost. So um, I had a, a next question then to to move on, like now to basically where you're at right now um, in your role as a master student. And I was curious, can you tell us a little more about what you're studying right now? Yeah, so right now I'm a master's student in Dr. Isabel Cote's lab at SFU. Um, I actually started in the lab last year, so I just had my first anniversary. It was very exciting. (laughs) Um, And when I started in the lab, both Isa and I were really curious about the effects of ocean acidification, so all that carbon dioxide dissolving in the ocean, making it more acidic. We were curious uh, whether sea cucumbers might actually be the solution for ocean acidification. Now, it sounds a little bit silly, but let me explain. (laughs) Um, In the tropics, sea cucumbers eat sand and coral bits. 
And then as it passes through their stomachs, it's dissolved. And what comes out the other end helps buffer against changes in pH. So we were curious if we grew sea cucumbers and corals in tanks to find out whether or not the cucumbers could actually help the corals um, survive and thrive even with ocean acidification happening. So that was kind of the original project. Now, Mm -hmm. um, in light of recent events with the global pandemic, of course, international travel um, kind of went off the table. So that led me into uh, cold water sea cucumbers and focusing less on the sand that they're eating and dissolving and more on the nitrogen side of things, more of the nutrients and how they're contributing nutrients to the ocean. So it's basically seeing like how sea cucumbers are kind of like fertilizers of the ocean in a way? Yes, exactly. So their pea is kind of like a fertilizer. Um, and when I ask, when people ask on the street what I do, I, I just tell them that I study uh, animal pea. <laughs> I'm sure you have diverse reactions to that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So can you tell us a little more like how, what the setup of your experiment, like to figure out how you can know if it's having an effect or not? Yeah, that's a great question. So in order to measure um, the pee of a sea cucumber, they're not like people. They don't hold it up and then excrete it all at once. It's kind of just constantly dissolving off their skin and coming out of them. And so I actually stick them in little Ziploc bags full of seawater. And I take a sample of water at the beginning and then an hour later. And then I'm able to add chemicals to that water And when I put them in a machine, um, I'm able to measure how much that water is now glowing. And so the ammonium or like the waste, the pee in the water, if there's lots of pee, then the water will glow more, it'll fluoresce. And so I'm actually able to measure exactly how much the water is glowing and kind of convert that into an estimate of how much nitrogen has been excreted into the bag. Right. And after... Do you test that on, for example, some seaweeds or other environments? Are they doing better with that sea cucumber pee or not? Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm going to do next. So, okay. so far, I've kind of measured how much they're peeing in general. And we've gone out to a bunch of reefs and we've uh, recorded and re- measured all the cucumbers on these reefs. And so we can kind of guess, you know, how many cucumbers there are, I know how much pee each cucumber makes, and so we're going to use the estimated amount of pee to kind of do some manipulations. So right now in the lab, we're actually setting up these big bins that we're going to put cucumbers in, and then tomorrow we're going to go out and collect a bunch of kelp, and we're going to see if the kelp grows better when it's got cucumbers in the bin. So I'm really excited about that. Awesome. And are you going to do also like some... um in-situ observations as well? Yeah, that's kind of the goal. So if the lab work is promising, if it's going well, then um, we're going to go out and set up some outplants. So in at the end of April, we actually I had the chance to participate in a bunch of reef life survey dives. So you go out and you use a standard protocol to record all the fish and all the animals that you see And while I was doing this survey work, I was also pulling syringes of seawater. So I've actually got an idea um, based on these 22 surveys that we did where there's lots of pee and where there's not much pee. And so I think I'm going to put some 
some kelp out at these different sites and see if it grows differently in the field as well. Nice. So basically you're doing all the different aspects of, you know, like field work, lab work. Uh, that's pretty awesome. Except that I think where you're diving is pretty cold. Yeah, it's been pretty chilly, but uh, I mean, it's warmer now. You're kind of sweating on the boat and then you're freezing underwater and back and forth. It's a lot. So because you had all those different aspects of field work, like what was really, uh, what was the most exciting or what was the most unexpected or challenging about your, your research? Oh, the diving, diving is definitely a highlight. Uh, I'm, I'm a big naturalist, so I really like looking at all the critters and identifying them, taking photos and sharing those photos with other naturalists. So I'm always excited to see a new species. Um, and recently I saw a fish called a gunnel, which is like a long stretched out fish. It almost, almost looks like an eel, but it was a species that I've never seen before. So that was really exciting to try to get a photo of it and confirm that it was really something unique. And, and you confirmed it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was something special. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And, and I don't know if everyone you know, in the audience is really familiar with sea cucumbers. So I was wondering, can you share with us some facts about sea cucumbers? I know a little of the, about them. And actually, I was looking online before our discussion. And I was like, oh, actually, it's like, a lot more species than I thought, or they're like more diverse than I thought. It's actually they are weirder than I thought. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's there's a couple really fun facts about sea cucumbers. Um, one of the funnest facts is that they actually breathe through their anus. Oh wow! <laughs> so we have our lungs kind of connected to our mouths, um, and they've got like these branchy breathing plumes, um, very high amounts of surface area but they're actually attached to the other end. They're attached to their bums. So that's how they're actually breathing and ventilating their breathing structures is through their butts. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the other fun things about sea cucumbers is that they're actually able to eviscerate themselves. So they spit out all of their internal organs and then they can regrow them. Wow. So that's a pretty good defense against predators. If someone's chasing you, you know, spit out your guts, offer up a nice taste, tasty little snack and then crawl away as fast as your little little cucumber feet can take you, which isn't isn't really that fast. They're pretty slow. <laughs> and it's like they have the ability to regenerate their guts after that? Yeah, so sea cucumbers are related to other things like uh, starfish and urchins. And all these animals are really good at regrowing what they've lost. So I'm not sure if you've ever seen a starfish uh, maybe on the beach and it's got four big arms and just one little nubby arm left, that's because it's probably regrowing something that it lost. So that whole group of animals um, have really strong regenerative abilities. Wow, that's amazing. It's like almost a creature that could be, I don't know, really good for a horror story. You may have a different opinion about that, but right now is <laughs> <laughs> what I'm thinking. Because also I've heard, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but they could also like liquefy themselves in a way to go in really tiny spots too? Well, there's not really many hard parts in a sea cucumber. So yeah, they're pretty good at squeezing through tight spaces. We actually had a bit of a problem with that. Um, so those bins I mentioned earlier that we use to um, grow kelp and sea cucumbers together in uh, have like a tiny little hole that the water flows out of. And I don't know why, but the cucumbers just love to kind of uh, get stuck like stick, stick their body into this hole and it plugs it and then the tubs overflow and it's just chaos in the lab. 
And it's just like a like the size of your pinky nail, and they'll just shove their bodies against it and kind of get sucked in. I don't I don't know what possesses them to do these things. So one of the you know unexpected yeah thing of doing lab work with cucumbers, I guess. Yeah, they're they're quite hard to contain if they don't want to be contained. And I've heard also that you can you can eat them. Yeah. So um, globally, actually, they're endangered. Lots of populations are endangered because they're so tasty and they're so prized uh, as a food item. Um, in British Columbia on the West Coast, we still have pretty healthy populations. I actually had a chance to eat sea cucumber for the first time uh, last week, and it was pretty, it was pretty tasty. I kind of I kind of get it. I see why I see why they're so sought after. <laughs> um, but in at least in um, BC, most folks only eat. There's only five, there's like five little muscles that run the length of the sea cucumber. And so that's all that we really eat here. So you throw the rest out. It feels pretty wasteful. Mm-hmm. And what do you taste like? Um, it's almost like kind of like a squid or like a clam, kind of um, shellfishy, but quite delicate because um, there's just these five like thin muscle strips. And yeah, kind of like calamari, but a bit, a bit softer. Hmm. I guess I'll have to try one day. <laughs> and... Um, Going back to your research, um, if you think about it more like from like, you know, a more large scale or how can be useful, for example, management and, you know, policy decision making, what do you think could you, could you relate your research to that, knowing that you have sea cucumbers, some are engineered um, endangered, <laughs> and some are like, you know, have a fisheries, but they can act as fertilizers. So maybe good to keep around how do you fit all that together and what you know for example at the policy level or management level or knowledge you know what do we get out of your out of this research i think a lot of the times when people think about the impacts of animals in their environment we think about the way that they eat kind of down the food chain those kind of top-down effects. You've got a wolf and it eats an elk, and that elk might have eaten some grass and kind of down the food chain. But these these fertilizing effects more from the bottom, the ways that animals can help things like seaweeds or, you know, on land, trees grow. I think those effects are really important as well. And given mm-hmm. the fact that humans are, you know, reducing and moving around a lot of the animal biomass on our planet, I think it's really important to understand what roles these animals are playing and what's going to happen if we take them out of the ecosystem, um, specifically with sea cucumbers, where they're, you know, not not always the most attractive species. They're named after uh, donkey poop in some places, the donkey dung sea cucumber. I think it's easy to think that they don't have any impacts, that we don't, we're not going to lose anything if the cucumbers are lost. So I'm really um, passionate about trying to show the importance of, uh, I think, a bunch of species that are otherwise underlooked, such as the sea cucumber. No, I agree. It's not the most charismatic species. I mean, I guess after working with them for a while, you might see it differently. But I guess, you know, for maybe most people, it's true. I guess it's probably overlooked. And I know in the Mediterranean, for example, where I'm from, they just, you know, black and uh it's true they, they they don't look too good so when you're diving it's not the thing you're the most excited to you know to see as a diver and i don't think there is a fishery for them 
what are your you know next steps for example in your research and career like what where would you like to do you know with all this knowledge in the future are you going to still if you can work with sea cucumbers or there is you like i don't know studying something else or work for you know at a specific place so as much as i love sea cucumbers i don't think that they're necessarily going to be my whole career Um, I'm definitely very excited to finish up my master's working with them. Um, I'm still undecided. I might do a PhD next, but um, something that I'm really excited about working with uh, are invasive species. Um, I think invasive species offer a lot of the same possibilities to study this, this kind of nutrient cycling, kind of more in the context of losing native species and replacing them with something different and then trying to figure out if that new thing is going to fill the same role that the native species was filling. So I'd love to do some invasive species work. Um, I think if I don't stay in academia, I'd love to do some science communication, maybe work with kids again. Um, I really think that educating the public and increasing you know, a trust in scientists is going to be really important uh, in the years to come. No, I agree with you. And it seems like by you know being a science educator on Benfield, you've been already, you know, Uh, having a big impact on on the next generation of you know scientists too, and I think it's it's great. And and related to invasive species, I think it's a great field of study because, like you mentioned, you did a lot of work earlier related to climate change, ocean acidification, and with all that, um, yeah, ecosystems will probably change as well. So, how are different species are going to move in and compete with others? So I think that would be. Yeah, really interesting. And uh, in that field that you would like to pursue, for example, is there someone we talked about earlier, kind of like of role models? So I was wondering if in your specific field right now, there's someone you admire in general, you know, um, in your field, or in general, in general, if there's someone you would like to connect with one day, because I guess it's your chance you can shout out, and maybe they will hear this, and they're like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, there's a really cool scientist named Emily Darling that I would love to meet one day. Um, we've actually studied a couple of the same invasive species. Um, we both did some work on green crab and on this invasive mud snail. And there have been a couple times where I like have this idea and I think it's this brilliant, groundbreaking idea. And then like a month later, Emily Darling publishes a paper on it. And I'm like, ah, crap. <laughs> so I think it'd be really cool to talk to her, maybe pick her brain about what she thinks is the, the next big thing. Yeah, or even collaborate because then you're like, okay, we can work together on that. Or you know, instead of feeling like, yeah, I'm, I'm behind again. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is kind of nice because it would have taken me years to answer the questions I had. But I, I just got to read her paper in a couple hours and I got all those answers delivered to yeah. me. No, that's that's great. And also because you're, you know, you're doing your master, you like to do your PhD and you're still, you know, um, I would say pretty young. And so what is your your vision of the future you would like to see or what do you think you would like to see being improved or changed? Because I feel like you, you can have a, also being impact on all that and whatever the research you'd be doing. Yeah, I'd love, I'd love to see a lot of the barriers that um, marginalized communities face in STEM um, kind of torn down and just uh, demolished because 
as, as much as our world is improving in terms of uh, some forms of acceptance and open-mindedness towards those who are different, I think there's still a lot of barriers for, you know, queer and trans folks, people of color, of course, women, people with disabilities. And I think that as scientists, we are uh, at our best when we've got lots of different voices in the room and lots of different perspectives. So I kind of want to try to pull up that ladder behind me and make things a bit easier for those that come, that follow. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it's really needed. And and do you have any ideas? Um, I mean, maybe you didn't have a chance to think about that yet. I don't want to put you too much on the spot, but any ideas of how you would like to see this happening? Yeah. So at uh, Simon Fraser University, um, the biology department has uh, a bunch of grad students organizing a diversity and inclusion committee, and they've been fighting for uh, a scholarship, actually, for Black and uh, people of color trying to you know, remove some of the financial barriers to going to school. So um, that's an initiative that I'm part of, and I'm really proud to say that it's uh, progressing. Maybe we'll have uh, a funding page that I can put in the show notes later. But um, I think folks are just more and more aware of, you know, the financial burdens that can almost be waved away with a magic wand when schools start offering scholarships to those students. Yeah, no, I agree. That's one of the one of the big barriers for sure. And it's great that you're doing this work and also having your perspectives on that and having young people being involved in that, it really, it really helps having, yeah, the students being involved in that instead of having, you know, waiting for the administration or professors who are sometimes, I don't know, a little more sometimes disconnected or have other, I don't know, priorities maybe, I have no idea, <laughs> don't work for the university. Um, but thinking about that, is there, a, I don't know, for some final words, is there a specific message you would like to share with, you know, listeners? Um, anything you would like to recommend? I don't know, like website to get resources about, I don't know, sea cucumbers or how to be more involved, I don't know, in like, you know, um, BIPOC advocacy, things like that. Yeah, so um, in Canada right now, um, I'm sure a lot of folks have been keeping track of the news with the, uh, not discovery, but confirmation of the mass graves um, of Indigenous children behind residential schools. And I think now is a really good time for allies to reflect on their positions and amplify Indigenous voices and donate money to important projects, um, including the Residential School Society. Um, and I can, I can send you the link for that, that charity. Yeah, that would be great. And I can add that on the on the little like description of the show. And uh, no, I thank you for doing that because I, I agree with you. And the, the more we talk about that, uh, I mean, it's really important to talk about that for sure. Yeah, I agree. Um, and sorry, earlier I misspoke. It's the Indian Residential School Survivors Society that I would encourage you to pitch some money that way. Great. Now that sounds great. I don't know if you have anything else to to add but first i would like to say like how it's been a pleasure to talk with you to know more about you and i'm really wishing you know you the best in what you're going to to do next and discover next and definitely i'm sure you're going to bring a lot to i don't know inspire a lot of younger people out there for sure 
Thank you. This has been really fun, and I hope hope everyone leaves with a bit of an appreciation for sea cucumbers. <laughs> I know, I know. It's like a tough. I like that. Uh, there, there are a lot of cool, you know, uh, little facts about sea cucumbers. I learned a bunch about that, and you made me curious about sea cucumbers. So, hopefully, other people will be motivated as well to go online and to check out that how diverse they can be. And I even read one species I think can be up to three meters long. Wow, that's a big sea cucumber. Yeah, and it's one I, I don't think I'd be happy to. I, I'd be intimidated by the sea cucumber in this case. <laughs>